Um, can we turn to your second song? And that second song is Every Promise. Uh, this song was written by Keith Getty and Stuart Townend, uh, who are among really some of the only modern hymn writers around today. Uh, British guys, they wrote In Christ Alone, they wrote some other wonderful hymns. This song is called Every Promise. I chose it because it's about the Word of God, and we're talking about liberalism, which is a desire to be free from the Word of God, so let's, let's proclaim our faith here. Um, if you'd like to join me and you get the sense of it, let's, let's do this. From the breaking of the dawn to the setting of the sun, I will stand on every promise of your word. Words of power strong to save that will never pass away. I will stand on every promise of your word. For your covenant is sure And on this I am secure. I can stand on every promise of your word. Let's do verse 4. Hope that lifts me from despair. Love that casts out every fear. As I stand on every promise of your word. Not forsaken, not alone, for the Comforter has come. As I stand on every promise of your word, grace sufficient, grace for me, grace for all who will believe. We will stand on every promise of your word. Amen. One of the ways that we protect ourselves that we won't talk, well, yeah, it's this day of guarding mood. Um, truth is, is, is not just for us to go, well, I guess that's right. Um, it is to treasure and to build our whole lives on and to pass along like a golden baton to our kids. Um, it's not just about getting doctrine right on paper, and, and uh, it is about treasuring and delighting in these truths. So that's why we sing them. Um, those who read Scripture do well. Those who read Scripture and pray do better. Those who read Scripture, pray, and sing do best. Okay. All right. Section two. Part two. 1820s to 1890s. Okay, the seeds, this is a Gary Dorian phrase, the seeds of American theological liberalism were sown among 18th century New England pastors. The roots don't break ground until the middle of the 19th century in this country. Um, The Protestant main line really does not come to be developed until the, the Civil War and just after. And now that I've used a word, main line, uh, let's do a little defining in the interest of clarity. This is interesting. Um, got this on Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, mainline, the term is a little shrouded in mystery. We don't entirely know why it exists, why we call it mainline. 
Um, the term probably developed in the 1920s during the fundamentalist modernist controversy. We'll talk about fundamentalist modernist controversy tomorrow. But the term mainline was actually probably borrowed from the Philadelphia mainline, which was a cluster of wealthy first ring suburbs outside of Philadelphia that were developed along the Pennsylvania Railroad Main Line. A lot of residents up and down the Railroad Main Line were themselves members of historic Protestant congregations. So there were Methodists there, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Episcopalians. So that's the Main Line. And they were liberal or more modernist in their thinking, and so that name Main Line gets attached to them. Uh, Now, sometimes you hear other words, mainstream Protestantism. You've heard that before, maybe. Or a little amalgam of that would be old-line Protestantism. That's another way of talking about it. Um, One of my favorite characters on the scene today, United Methodist Bishop William Willimon, who is never one to shy away from self-deprecating humor, um, has even referred to the main line as the sideline of American Protestantism, thinking about uh, the numerical decline of the main line since the 1960s, which has been uh, sharp since the 1960s. Just so you know, little data here, 31 million Americans in our country, 1965, uh, claimed mainline affiliation. 31 million Americans. By 2005, that number dropped to 21 million. 10 million were lost in 30 years. Bearing in mind those stats are eight years old, uh, it's true that the numerical bleeding of the main line continues to this day. So why are we interested in a movement that is disappearing? And if we follow the trend, if history is any indication, might even just disappear in a generation. Well, my answer is that it only appears to be dying, I think. In mood, methods, morals, and message, um... I, for one, do not believe that mainline churches have no future. The raw numbers might be telling another story, but if you measure the ingredients of liberalism, freedom from the word of God in mood, methods, morals, message, um, then these folks are alive and well among groups that you might call evangelical. And if you want to know where the current fragmenting evangelicalism is headed... Um, we might be wise to look back and see how the main line drifted in the 19th century. Uh, the Unitarianism that emerged out of Congregationalism in the uh, 1700s and early 1800s is only one part of the story of American liberal theology, and it's not the most impactful. In other words, it's not Unitarian thinking that has made liberal theology a significant movement in this country. Unitarians have been a, a smaller group. It's liberalism in the main line. And so the stories we're going to hear right now are the ones that provide a root structure for the growth that's going to come to full flower tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock as we look at the turn of the 20th century. And I'd like to begin to investigate some roots, and I want to begin with Horace Bushnell. Horace Bushnell was born in 1802 in the village of Bantam, which is in the town field of Litchfield, Connecticut. He was a congregational church minister. He is revered by some to be the single greatest theologian that this country produced in the 19th century. 
Um, that's a subjective opinion, of course. It's not objective fact. But it's fair to say that this guy is an unavoidable figure in the 19th century, and so we have to look at him. Uh, there are theologians, both liberal and conservative, that see Bushnell as the genuine father of American theological liberalism in the mainline. Um, others are slower to draw that conclusion. Others are just loath to make the comparison at all and would be concerned about any connections. My view is that Bushnell is like Charles Chauncey before him. I think he might be the unwitting father of Protestant liberalism. That is, if he played a role in what we call mainline liberalism today, he did it unwittingly. He didn't set out to do that. And I'm going to try to provide some details of his life and just let you draw your own conclusions. He was a graduate of Yale College, 1827. He became a tutor in that school two years later, and uh, he had set out to study law. He's got a great mind, but he switches to theology. And then he was ordained in the North Congregational Church of Hartford, Connecticut, May 1833. And he remained at his post as the pastor of that church until 1859, uh, an important year. It was the year that Charles Darwin's Origin of Species was published. Uh, he died at the age of 74. You can see older there on the left-hand side, 1876. Um, he was trained at Yale. We're not going to talk a lot about Yale in depth because I don't know a lot about Yale in depth, but I do know that Yale was started by Cotton Mather, who was the son of Increase Mather, and Increase was probably the last old-line Harvard preach-the-word kind of president. Uh, after Increase Mather was uh, released from his presidency at Harvard, his son, Cotton Mather, said, we've got to do something new. We've got to start a new school. And so Cotton Mather starts Yale. And uh, eventually, uh, Jonathan Edwards goes there. All the Great Awakening guys, what they call the New Light Calvinists, which doesn't mean a whole lot today, um, they were there. But by 1827, Bushnell is there. And Yale, just like Harvard, is beginning to experience a lot of division. In fact, Yale is drifting so fast that William Ellery Channing looked at Yale and he goes, that's not going to last. <laughs> that tension is not going to last. You guys are going to abandon the Christian faith. And uh, in Emerson's, uh, rather in Channing's opinion, they did. Now, that's the institution he was trained at. But uh, Bushnell is not an institution. He's an individual. And he was a paradox, if there ever was one. On the one hand, Bushnell would say things like this, quote, the most contradictory book in the world is the Gospel of John. Okay? Um, when addressing the classic, what's known as the Chalcedonian definition of the person of Christ, that Jesus is one person in two natures, that was settled at 451 at a council 1,500 years ago. Uh, he looked at that. Jesus, one person, two natures, and he said, this theory only creates difficulties a hundredfold greater than anything it solves. Um, now, he didn't deny the Trinity explicitly, but he didn't quite affirm it either. He felt that Nicene Trinitarian Orthodoxy was presumptuous. That's his statement. Possibly even absurd, the doctrine of the Trinity. Possibly. So he was a guy who lacked doctrinal definition. He didn't like formulations. 
human formulations of doctrine. He wanted to stay doggedly with the Bible. He, he said he loved the Bible and he taught the Bible. But he was absolute mud about, about adopting or professing propositional truths based upon it. Does that sound familiar at all? Propositional truth. That's where we are today. We have been for a generation. Um, Bushnell pled with fellow believers to, quote, stay by the scripture and trust ourselves to no constructive reasonings on the subject. Stay by the scripture. Don't, Don't do some sort of formulation of what the Bible says. Just stay with what the Bible says. What's your creed? The Bible's your creed. He would say things like that. Um, Gary Dorian accurately called Bushnell's theology a liberal-leaning experiment in progressive orthodoxy. Okay? Um, A liberal-leaning experiment in progressive orthodoxy. Um, You might be sitting here thinking, moderate? Uh, Okay. Liberal-leaning? Yes. Progressive experiment? Yeah. Orthodox? That doesn't sound orthodox. Um, Was Bushnell orthodox? Well, it depends. Probably not when it came to the Trinity. He wouldn't make a positive statement about the Trinity. Probably not when it came to his statements about Jesus. But the man had limits. And I want to describe some limits here. I want to start on the outside and then move into things that are more significant. First of all, he was a theist. Okay, he wasn't an atheist. He believed in a personal God. So he wasn't even a deist like Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. He wasn't even a Unitarian. But you probably couldn't call him a Trinitarian either because he wouldn't receive the classic doctrine of the Trinity that the church um, held. He knew Channing, Emerson, Parker. He knew them. He knew Harvard Divinity School. Wasn't impressed. He sought to distance himself from guys like this. He knew plenty of universalists in his day. He knew they were sincere. He just thought they were sincerely wrong. Listen to him walk up to the precipice of universalism, look over it, and then back away. Listen to this. This is what Bushnell writes on the doctrine of eternal punishment, the biblical teaching of hell. Hell does not bring out the kingdom of God. And it would certainly be more agreeable if we could have this hope of universalism. And many are resolved to have it without Christ's permission, if they cannot have it with his permission. I just love church history. People say things so well that are different. It's very good. He continues, they, the universalists, they make it a point of merit to seize this honor bravely for God on their own responsibility. And for it, if they must, defy the scripture. Bushnell concludes, I think otherwise. And could even count it a much braver thing to be willingly less brave. And despite all our natural longings for some issue of God's plan that's different, follow still the lead of the master. In other words, Jesus teaches this. And he stayed with it. And you know what this means? That despite significant compromises theologically, Bushnell, if he were alive in the last couple of years, he wouldn't have given an endorsement to a book like Love Wins. 
by Rob Bell. He wouldn't have lent his name to it. We're interesting people, aren't we? We're a bundle of contradictions. All of us are. He was no different. Uh, Beyond his views of eternal punishment, it might interest at least some of you to know where he was on the gender question. We haven't talked about that much. Manhood, womanhood, and so on. Um, This is kind of an insider statement, so those of you who, who read theology and so on, or if you've been in any of my classes, you know this, uh, know this guy's name. Bushnell held a view of a woman's place in the home and in the church that was so antiquated that he might have made Wayne Grudem slightly nervous. Um, Bushnell was not just a complementarian in his thinking. He was a traditionalist and a rather rugged traditionalist. Uh, got some quotes there, but I won't give them. They're in the notes that you'll get if you'd like them. Uh, when it came to the issue of Roman Catholicism, He wasn't just a solid Protestant. He was a nearly militant one. And I'm not throwing away that word militant. Militant one. In 1843, Bushnell joined an anti-Catholic group called the Protestant League. Gary Dorian says this, The Protestant Leaguers aggressively attacked the Vatican on religious and political grounds and declared forthrightly that their objective was to march on Rome and overthrow the papacy. That's Bushnell. He's going to march on Rome. Overthrow the papacy. So was Bushnell liberal-leaning and progressive? Depends. Not entirely. And that's what this seminar is about. I just want to stand here and point the finger everywhere I can. This one. (laughs) Beginning with myself. We are a shocking collection of contradictions. Each of us are. Mood, Methods, morals, message. We're just doggedly conservative in some areas and quite progressive and open in some other areas. Bushnell was no different. He was incongruous. I am, too. We all are. Uh, Here's another biographical sketch. Uh, This next man is possibly more important than Bushnell. He was certainly more famous. Henry Ward Beecher. Born in Litchfield, Connecticut, same town as Horace Bushnell, uh, 10 years younger. I have that right? 10 years younger? Um, He died, Beecher died, he was born in 1813, he died in 1887, which makes him 73 when he dies. His biographer called him the most famous man in America. Um, That smells, yeah. Can we switch CDs now? Yeah, yeah, I'll slow down, I'll slow down. 